Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined as always by my keyboardist, uh, Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. What's up, Ezra? How you doing? I'm all right. How are I'm... you? I appreciate that, like you couldn't even get to like saying my name without without laughing. Yeah. Well, what is that about? Well, we were just talking about one of the acts we just watched streaming together in Coachella. So why don't you talk a little about Coachella before we get started here? Because I know this is a big time of year for you and for all indie California kids, I guess. I guess. Although I guess nowadays Coachella is like so international because um, it's just out of control big. But um, yeah, before I would go to tennis tournaments every other week and then do all these sorts of things like music was my tennis and Coachella was my Indian Wells. So it's been a lot. It's been a few years since I've I've been, which I don't exactly miss. I definitely have outgrown it. As I think if you listened to our podcast a few weeks ago that we had, where we had an interview with Andrea Petkovic, right. uh, she and I kind of both came out on the same side, which is that like festivals are gross. Like we're there for the music. I am not there to like be pressed up against some dude's sweaty back and being burnt under the sun and feeling disgusting. Like the the, I, the minute that the shows are over, I just want to go home and take a shower and sleep in a nice, cozy, quiet resort bed so i don't miss it but thankfully coachella has been live streamed all weekend so i've just been catching up on a lot of the acts that i haven't seen in concert uh, either recently or at all so it's been yeah, fun youtube is a tremendous concert venue for me as far as they go it's pretty cheap it's not dirty there's always a bathroom nearby if you you know plan it that way and uh yeah it's a it's an awesome thing i think the first time I think last year for Coachella was the first year that they actually like had legit like programmed streams with multiple camera angles uh-huh. and whatever. And it was during one of the legendary, what is now like a, a completely legendary uh, set, um, one of the best sets of, from Coachella in all, at, of, you know, of all time uh, of Arcade Fire. And just um, I remember sitting on the couch with my friend, like drinking beers and just watching it on the laptop and being like totally engrossed by what was going on. It was so cool. So um, this year they've just really improved it. I mean, the streams are HD and they're pretty flawless and they're pretty great. Yeah, very good. What's also pretty great is all the questions we've gotten from you, our dear listeners, over the past uh, several weeks, bordering on months. So we're going to do a little catch up show here. It's kind of a slow week in tennis um thankfully thankfully we, we i don't know about one. you but thankfully yeah, no, i needed a break. we need a break and we're not getting one next week with monte carlo starting up diving head first into the, the european dirt but while we have a little bit of a pause here and that's no respect meant of course to you know tommy robredo and john isner and roberta vinci happy to give them their due especially isner by the way good week for isner um very good but yeah so let's uh, get to a bunch of questions we have shall we we shall the one sort of timely question we got on the tennis front, on the pure tennis front, a couple questions we got actually about Roberta Vinci, who has not normally been a big topic of discussion of for us or for tennis fans in general, but Vinci fever seems to have swept over the game, Courtney. It's weird. It is kind of strange. <laughs> it's strange. So, uh, so here are the questions we got about Roberta Vinci, um, who is up to number 12 with her win in Katowice, or however you pronounce Katowice. Katowice. I like saying, we. I don't know. I know. You kept saying it, and I was convinced that that's how it was pronounced. And then I finally put the call out, and somebody sent me, like, a, a wave file of it actually being pronounced. And it's Katowice. How about that? 
Okay. Which I'm going to miss Katowice because it's really fun to say. <laughs> it is fun. I liked saying Katowice. I thought that was fun. <laughs> it's, it's whatever you make of it, basically. I, yes. I, gave the, I gave it more of an Italian flair because I knew that something big was going to happen for Roberto Vinci there. Exactly. Obviously. Yeah. So we have a question from Ova Fanboy, the loyal listener, who asks us, what explains the dramatically symmetrical ascensions of Arani and Vinci long in the shadow of Schiavone Panetta and Referring to Vinci, she took out Kvitova pretty emphatically. Yeah, how important is an all-court game for a shorter player, tennis by extension? And then we have another question also about those two. We got on our Facebook page. We like Facebook questions. Um, this one's from Elizabeth Lachlan, who says, Do you think playing doubles is an advantage for playing singles? There is obvious success in Irani and Vinci's game, but there are also players who have stopped playing doubles to focus on their singles game. So let's mostly talk about them together, Courtney, and the rise of Sarah Irani and Roberta Vinci, who really, let's remember, this time last January, were on nobody's radar to do anything whatsoever. And now one of them is like number six and one of them is number 12. How did this happen? Well, I mean, I think that in the at the end of the day, it's, having like a pair of people come up together is a pretty common thing within tennis, you know, to, to kind of not feel like you're in isolation trying to succeed or break through, but actually have somebody who you can relate to, who in, in whatever way that means, whether it is because they come from the same country or you were in juniors together or you're friends with or whatever it is, but somehow you relate to this person and they do well. And it makes you believe that you can do well also, because I think that within tennis for a lot of journeyman type players, and I think sometimes maybe a little bit with the younger players, like the juniors who are beginning to play pros that it's easy to kind of settle in to kind of thinking okay I'm going to be a journeyman like that's all that I can do and I'm going to be okay with that because psychologically that's actually quite easy you know to kind of think you know my goal is just make second and third rounds or make it through qualies cash my check and move on and enjoy my life and it's fine and so that that can be way more subconscious than conscious that sort of resignation too Exactly, exactly. You know, you don't always realize that you're doing it. But then you see like your friend or your rival or your country person, or your doubles partner in this case, do something do, you know, do something really well. And it makes you think like, look, I practice with this person every day. I she doesn't she's not better than me. Yeah. You know, and I think that that little click of this person is who is like ranked, you know, 30 spots ahead of me or whatever is not better than me is huge. And so to be able to have that, I mean, you look at it, you know, look at what Novak did in terms of helping kind of Tipsarovich get himself into the top 10. I think that was a big motivating factor. And Troisky a little bit, too. And Troisky as well. You look at Yelena and Anna, kind of the same thing. You have Kim and Justine. Kim and Justine, the Williamses, everything. Even if you go back before there was a Ronnie and Vinci, there was Panetta and Schiavone. And kind of Flavia being the first Italian to break into the top 10. And then a year later, Francesca was like right there, right? And, um, and won a slam a year later out of nowhere. Exactly. You know, so so you see these kind of country pairs, country-based pairs kind of helping each other and sustaining each other. And I don't know. I mean, Ben, we talked about it quite a bit when we were in Charleston about how now we're seeing kind of the, the, the junior to pros, like those kids start feeling the same way that – they're seeing, you know, you know, like a Jeannie Bouchard is seeing her best friend, Laura Robson, knock off two slam champs at the U.S. Open and is like, well, Laura's not better than me. Yeah, I beat Laura all the time. Exactly. Yeah. I beat Laura all the time. Like, so clearly I am capable of the same thing. And that's what they're doing. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. And a bunch of them, you asked a bunch of 
players at in Charleston, you know, was there a moment where you said, okay, I can do this? And a bunch of them did point to Laura making the fourth round at the U.S. Open and beating Kim and Lena on the way and leading by example. And I think that's been a huge thing for Vinci especially, who I think probably is a lot older. Let's remember, there's a big age difference between Irani and Vinci. Vinci mm-hmm. is 30, and Irani, I believe, is 25. Yeah, Irani's 25, and she had big results that sort of spurred on Vinci, maybe sort of got Vinci out of neutral or something. Because they play fairly similar games, kind of. Irani's a bit more Powerful. proactive, I think, and yeah. puts a lot more sort of uh, pressure on opponents than Vinci does. Right. And Irani's game has just really sort of evolved well. I think she's playing much better than she was this time when she made the French Open last year. And and Ben, you're kind of, I think maybe maybe this happened, you know, the sprinklings of this happened in Indian Wells and maybe it really flourished in Miami, but you're kind of a, a, a Ronnie convert. No, I like watching Irani play a lot now. I think that she, her game is just, I don't know, it's cool watching players who have something they can't do, whether that was, you know, Dementia back when she was a thing, back with her served. I always love watching her try to overcome that deficit she had. It's the same thing with Irani. She doesn't have the big power or a big serve at all, but she finds these ways to really push the big players a lot of times. Now, she has gotten blown off the court sometimes, too, but what she's done in her last couple matches in Indian Wells in Miami against uh, Maria Sharapova, I thought was really impressive, just the amount of variety and thoughtfulness she puts in there. And Yeah, I enjoyed those matches. Yes, I'm still waiting for someone to make a uh, a montage of Sharapova running for like every Irani <laughs> drop shot, like scrambling, like, uh, and screaming as she ran up there. That was, that was just fun. And it's just fun seeing someone, you know, a David versus Goliath sort of thing, in yeah. that sense. No, totally agree. Totally agree. But yeah, I mean, I think the other thing to take into consideration with kind of the, with the Ronnie and Vinci is that I think generally within the tours, maybe, I don't know if it's more on the WTA than the ATP, but it's present in both locker rooms. It's kind of like this reticence to maybe ask a stranger or a rival or somebody that, you know, you're competing hard against or something, hey, like you're doing something like their results are going up. It's like, what are you doing differently? right? There's going to be less of that. And maybe when you have a doubles partner, like Vinci's gotten much fitter yeah. in the last year and a half. Um, and so is Arani. And, you know, and in that way, it's kind of like, well, okay, well, let me let me in on the secret of you're getting fitter. Okay, well, I'm going to, how about we work out together, you know, and, and, you know, something even as simple as that, you know, kind of helps. And but really, at the end of the day, I, I feel like tennis, a lot of it is it's two things. It's, it's work ethic and it's belief. Mm-hmm. And if you can kind of get yourself in a situation where where those both those things are firing, then you're in a good spot. And I think having a friend by your side or a rival to kind of help you get into that headspace is huge in terms of success. Now let's talk about the other part of one of those questions about the doubles part, because they are the number one doubles team and they are both uh, top 15 players, which we haven't had in a while, a team that was that good at doubles, in, besides from the Williamses, obviously, who are also doing this well in singles consistently. Um, you have like Panetta Dolko, who, but they weren't as good singles players, Dolko especially, as these two are now. So do you think that helps? And do you think more players could be helped by not, quote unquote, focusing on singles and abandoning the uh, doubles circuit? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that, that doubles is important. And I, and I do wish that more top players would play it. I mean, I think uh, in particular, you know, players like Azarenka or even, I mean, really Wozniacki, I think is a, is a big one who should play more doubles to be able to play in a relaxed environment, to have fun. Because I think yeah. most singles players will say that, like, you know, when they play doubles, it's fun 
for yeah. them and they enjoy the kind of team aspect of it, but also to just work on volleys and, and getting to the net and just very basic. I mean, while the tactics are more complex, the, the execution of certain things is actually much simpler, I think, on a doubles court. So just focusing on, okay, we're going to trade forehands, you know, four, four cross-court forehands, and now we're going to trade backhands and, you know, things like that. And just reading a game and, and reading shots, I think it's important. And I do wish more top players would play it. I think that with respect to Ronnie and Vinci, it's a little bit different because I think their games are suited to being strong singles players and doubles players because they're they're so great with variety and touch and feel. So in that way, it's kind of a perfect situation, I think, for them because their doubles is like perfectly in line with how they play singles. Yeah, and in doubles also you get a lot of serve and return reps. Yeah. And sort of less pressure-filled things. And for both of them, they've been able to really develop their returns because in doubles, if you had a bad return, you get burned for it immediately. Mm-hmm. So I think especially for returning, which has been a big part of both their games improving, doubles is huge, and uh, also serves. I mean, both of their serves are their weak points, so getting to shore that up, and I think it is big. I think there are certain players who seem like they enter doubles constantly with maybe not a lot of focus on it, like um, Lenny Yankovic <laughs> enters, plays a lot of doubles but never does particularly well at it. This is a, I mean, plays with pretty much anybody. She's a very random assortment of doubles partners she's had. But you get somebody, I don't know, Kerber has played doubles occasionally and done well that week in singles. The Williams sisters have, I think, historically done better in singles in tournaments where they've also entered doubles. It just it can help you sort of, you know, stay more... Um, focus during a tournament you don't have you might not have a day where you completely lose your momentum which can be big and that's yeah, for I think slams it's a good though thing. yeah for slams yeah right but i mean obviously it's it's a bit of a crunch to play during tournaments but you know i mean i think winning is winning i think that at the end of the day if you're an athlete and you're a competitor you just like winning whether or not that's playing cards during a rain delay yeah. or foosball or doubles or singles and so when you're in a position where you're just you're winning matches and you're holding a trophy I don't think you really care if it's like a trophy that's for doubles or singles. Obviously, singles is more important. But like at the end of the day, it was a, it was a successful week. Yeah. Um, and with, with Federer in Beijing, I think he credited the doubles goal to well with Varvinka, which sort of getting him out of a bit of a funk on the singles side at that point that he'd been in, losing to Nadal at the Wimbledon final and getting crushed in the previous French Open final. Mm-hmm. I mean, these things can't help, and it does translate because even though it's a very different format, you know, when you're that person playing both, it's still you feeling that winning and losing out there. Right. Yeah. So there we go. The next question we're going to get to comes from Renaissance, who asks us about encore coaching. He says the champs of the last six slams are ones who use it the least coincidence. And he's referring, and then he says, yeah, Sharapova having Hogstead coming down occasionally, but him just telling her, keep the ball in. She's going to choke. doesn't really count. Um, so, Courtney, do you think – I've written about this before actually a while ago, but I think we both probably agree there is a correlation between players who don't rely on the on-court coaching and who win the slams. Right, correlation and whether or not that's causation, it, it's it's hard to say. Yeah. Because, you know, if, if Serena is winning whatever three slams, like – that kind of skews the numbers just because she just never uses on-court coaching and never has. And But yeah, I mean, I think that, at the you know, it is that issue of, of problem solving, right? I think um, Bruce Jenkins wrote a piece on SI that just had, you know, some great quotes from Mary Carrillo and, and uh, some other folks about on-court coaching. And his position was that it was a scourge on the WTA and an embarrassment and it needs to go, which I think is probably the prevailing opinion. Yeah, I guess, right? I think so. 
I don't yeah. like it. I personally think it has serves no purpose and should just be gone. I mean, I don't think it makes for good TV almost ever. I think it can really embarrass players in the case of like a uh, um, extreme cases like Coco Vandeway last year at Stanford who had her mom come down and just talking about, you know, nothing in particular and just be like, you're doing great. I'm so proud of you, you know, blah, blah. Like, it's like, thanks, mom. Yeah. Um, while you're in like a, a final on ESPN2. There's other, obviously Wozniacki is one who gets criticized for it a lot. And Wozniacki seems to call her coach, her father, uh, Piotr, regardless of the score whatsoever. I think it really is just completely not score-based at all because she'll do it whether she's up 4-1 after five games or down 0-5. I mean, it's just no matter what, he's always out there as much as possible. Yep. So I don't, and I don't think it makes the women look good. I mean, I mean Bruce talked about in that piece, other people have as well. It's a visual of these women saying, I'm helpless without this guy coming on court helping me. And I don't think it puts a good image for WTF there, especially when there's not it on the ATP side. If the ATP had decided to have it as well, um, that'd be a different issue. But they haven't. And so there's an optics aspect to it, which I think is important. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard. You know, I mean, this goes um, the dialogues that Steve Tigner has been having over at tennis.com with a, a, I believe she's a clinical psychologist, but I can't remember, but it's under the, the, the name of the pieces are called dueling genders. And it's just basically talking about sexism and, and how the WTA is perceived. And, and one of the points that I think Steve makes quite well is just that the WTA kind of really, uh, obviously it benefits a lot from the fact that it is side by side with the ATP. I mean, what other professional sport do we have this? You yeah, don't, right? I mean, and it's and it's it's fantastic, and it definitely boosts the WTA and helps the WTA. But at the same time, constantly being compared to the ATP, the ATP sets the norm. So the ATP is what people expect, and so so long as the ATP, any difference that the ATP has with the WTA will automatically be the WTA will be seen as inferior on that difference. So in other yeah, words, grunting for the longest time, it's only recently that people are starting to talk about like male grunting, but for the longest time it was like the men don't grunt, but the women do. And it's horrible, right? You know, it, for the longest time, like women were the ones that were um, constantly mocked for the amount of time they took at the back of the court, like Sharapova, Hantukova, um, they're kind of between serve things. Yeah. And it was like, oh, what a joke. And now the guys do it. And now it's not an issue anymore. All of a sudden, everybody's timing Maria. And they're like realizing she's actually under 20 seconds almost every single time. And now it's a Rafa Novak issue or something. But the guys are always going to be kind of what is okay. This is what tennis says as its ideal. And the women are supposed to be expected to be exactly that as well. That's definitely how it's been. I think there is a shift, a little bit of a progress away from that recently in terms of like the slow play stuff right in terms of the monotonous sort of defense driven games and there's more complaints about the men's game now about the lack of depth i think there are ways of framing it now that have come out more and more as sort of more wta positive ways of looking at it sure which is i think a new development has a lot to do with you know generationally shifting things i mean there wasn't a lot of positive being said about the wta necessarily when it was wozniacki one svanareva two but like my my sense and maybe it's just i mean it's just my sense it's not like based in science or anything but my sense is that the knee-jerk response is always to whenever a problem comes up quote-unquote a problem is to Bash the WTA and protect the ATP. That's for a lot of people. It is, yeah. Yeah, you like know, you like, saw what happened when uh, when Stoser and Azarenka pulled out of Indian Wells. Right, precisely right. Yeah, that's a good example. So because of that, so anyways, so because the guys don't have on court coaching, and the women do, it automatically like makes the WTA look bad, and all these reasons for why on court coaching sucks 
are like somehow gender based or you know things like that whereas like i've heard like brad gilbert on espn too like he's a pretty vocal advocate of the men getting on court coaching yeah he's very and and i see his point about it he's like if if coaching and obviously he's biased because he's a former coach so obviously he puts great stock in the effect that a coach can have on a player right but you know his argument has always been you know if it leads to better tennis then let's have it. Yeah, I think um, we can get to the, we can get to this later when we're talking about golf, which is an upcoming topic. Right. But if people were paying attention as the golf was heating up today, Stevie Williams, who's the caddy, which is really just a coach, the way he does it, um, for Adam Scott was giving Adam constant advice down the stretch in all the crucial shots, and Adam even admitted afterwards that he couldn't see the with the darkness creeping in that well. So he was just doing basically closing his eyes and doing what his caddy told him to do. And I don't know, for me, that's one of the appeals of tennis always has been. It's that it's one-on-one, and it's, you know, if you're not smart to figure it out yourself that day, you're going to lose. And I always liked that. And I, I never liked coaching from the stands. That happened with uh, coaches, be it Carlos Rodriguez or Tony Nadal to a lesser extent, or Peter Wozniacki does it some. I don't know. I always really, really liked the one-on-one aspect of it. And I think that the encore coaching can dilute that. And I don't know there's really an argument to be said that, it improves quality of play that much. I mean, you saw what happened with Stephanie Vogelay in Charleston. <laughs> Her coach comes out, and then she immediately, you know, flops. Yeah, she which, we, have, which we see. But, yeah. you know, I mean, it's hard because we see that happen quite a bit, and we always focus on it. But I also know that, like, with Kvitova, for example, she's had instances where, like, her coach comes down, and she completely turns it around. Um, there are also times where she, her coach comes down and she completely collapses. It's like not really. I think she just kind of turns around and collapses on her own. That's, that's on her own. It's like whether, whether David is saying one thing or the other. I mean, that's just Petra, Petra be Petra, but then Petra be Petra and she won a slam. So, and she is one that I would say does rely on on-court coaching. So mm-hmm. it's, it's tough, you know, it's, it's a tough thing to call in terms of whether or not it's the on-court coaching, not being present at the slams, hurting players i don't know if i necessarily believe that although i mean i'm more inclined to believe it than not i guess if that makes sense yeah no i think it is i think and sam sozer talked about this i wrote a piece about it in august of 2011 or i guess during actually got published during the u.s open with sam sozer wound up winning and sam sozer was one of the people i talked to for it about how if you're gonna have to if everyone puts all this focus on the slams and really like all the focus is on the slam slam is you know the make or break now for a career if you're a top player and if you're going to have all this focus on the slams, why not replicate slam conditions everywhere? Why have to become somewhat dependent on this coaching that you can't get when it matters most? And people have said that with Wozniacki for a long time. Soser, on the other hand, has only won three titles in her career, but one of them is a slam. Yeah. Um, and she never, ever uses on-court coaching. She's one of the ones who really stays away from it. Serena is the other one. Venus, Serena and Venus. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Azarenka almost never uses it. And they've had some of the best slam results lately. So I think there's definitely something to that. Yep. And Azarenka's one who used to use it and no longer does. So it wasn't even just like for her a uh, like a personal stand that she always took or something like that. I mean, when she was with Bangarishan and early when she was with Sumik, they were down there all the time. And it really wasn't until the last couple of years that, that she never used it. And, hey, the last couple of years have been the, pretty good for her. Yeah, they haven't sucked. So keep on keeping on but you know i'm not i personally for me i'm not i don't really lose sleep about it it's not like my go-to issue when it comes to rule changes or wta issues or things like that if it's there it's there and sometimes it's totally entertaining i enjoy the peter wozniacki coach visits especially if you put them on mute and you kind of subtitle them yourself in your own Uh head 
It's a very sure. amusing game. Um, right, but, but is, is that amusement a thing the WTA should be proud of? No, but I'm not really concerned about that as much. I mean, at least in, the, in what I'm talking about right now. I mean, I don't... I just personally, it's just not something that I lose sleep over when the when the when all eyes are on the WTA, which is four times a year at the slams. It's not there. No, I know. Yeah. So like in terms of like, oh, everybody's making fun of the girls. I really think that's a bit overblown. I mean, I think that's more of a personal thing, you know, in terms of like hardcore tennis fans that are watching Stanford and seeing Coco Vandaway's mom come out. It's a big thing that I've a lot of people also gets talked about by spectators in person. If they're a mixed tournament, I'll hear people, a coaching timeout will happen. They'll get confused by it. Be like, oh, right. but this doesn't happen when I watch tennis on TV normally, which is only at the slams probably. And, oh, this wasn't happening in any of the men's matches we watched earlier. What is this? I mean, I think that they're, just because it's less in the spotlight than it might otherwise be, doesn't mean it's a good thing. And basically, I just don't think it adds anything. So why not get rid of it? It's basically my premise. No, that's fine. I mean, I yeah, but like uh, what I was going to say is it, I don't lose sleep over the fact that it exists and I'm not going to lose sleep if it doesn't exist. Like it's just for me personally, I just really I mean, I find the discussion about it generally exhausting, but I mean, and every single time somebody some a coach comes down, Twitter lights up and is like, "Oh, this is such a joke." I'm just like, seriously, it's just part of the game now, like whatever. When it goes away, it goes it goes away. And I totally get the complaints. It it's fine. I don't know. Like I'm just kind of I just kind of generally shrug at it. It's just not, I guess it's just not my, for personally, for me, it's just not my pet issue uh, when it comes to WTA. Our next question is from Mike Jansen, who says, less than a, less of a question than an observation, but Maria Sharapova is killing it on Twitter more than I thought she would. Thoughts on Sharapova on Twitter? And what's her basic reaction to her Twitter debut so far? I know you. I know, specific, like for a fact that you have opinions on this, Ben. So I'm going to yield the floor to you. I don't know if I have that strong opinions. Do I? You have. You have opinions. Okay. I'm first of all surprised at how few followers she has. I will say, um, I'm surprised that it's been four months. Honestly, and she's still behind Azarenka. Um, Maria Sharapova just... is currently at 179,746 followers. That is pretty for two months, and for being the highest paid female athlete. More than two months. Like, like yeah, almost, more than two months. More than three at this point. Yeah. 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 Like, that's pretty That's pretty rough. Like, she should have more than that. Yeah, so I'm not sure. I think a lot of it for her is that she tweets at weird times a day. At least that was the problem at the beginning. She made her debut tweet at, like, 11.15 at night. So that didn't really catch fire the way it might have. Otherwise, it was, like, 11.15 at night in Melbourne, which meant it was, like, you know, 5 a.m. in the U.S. or something. So, yeah, but I think generally it's interesting. I think it's a very sort of tastemaker thing she's trying to do. It's very, um, yeah, I, don't, I don't know. It, it's uh, it's definitely different. It's a very unique brand of tennis Twitter among anyone else in the sport. No one else is like hers. What do, what do you true. make of it? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's probably a good point. No one's Twitter is like Maria Sharapova's, so she has that going for her. It all very clearly is just another layer to her brand, yeah. the Maria Sharapova brand, which I have to say, and I think I've always really said that I've actually really respected how she's crafted said brand, yeah. which on, on, you know, on one level is a very inauthentic thing, like crafting your brand. Uh, that's weird. But it's, it's actually not entirely when you talk to her and meet her. Like she really does kind of want to be and really is in a lot of ways, aside from being kind of a dork and all these other things kind of personally, like she wants to be kind of that polished businesswoman, competitive athlete, really high end, like going for a high end demographic. Um, and her Twitter feed is pretty much all of those sorts of things. I mean, 
the moments that I've truly loved it. I mean, first of all, I find it amusing unintentionally just because it is like Maria Sharapova is our Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, pretty <laughs> like, much. Explain thing, what that means to people. Though. Okay, so if people don't know, I mean, obviously people know who Gwyneth Paltrow is, but she has this like mag this company called Goop, which is so fucking ridiculous. <laughs> like I can't I can't even. Basically, she'll like on their blog be like, oh, here's my I don't know. This is what I'm packing for my weekend to Lake Como or whatever, which is something that like none of us could possibly aspire no, to. It's like a lifestyle magazine for a lifestyle you can't possibly have. Yeah, it's for Gwyneth's lifestyle. And so she'll be like, here's what I packed. And it's like 15 pieces that cost like I think somebody added them up and it was like over eight hundred thousand dollars. This is like wardrobe wise. <laughs> And so it's so utterly ridiculous. And in that way, it's kind of its own little entity that is like just you pay attention because it's funny, unintentionally so. So Maria obviously is not that bad, but it is still there are moments where you're just kind of like, are you humble bragging? Are you just bragging? Are you just like, are you just being Maria Sharapova? Like, you know, because your life is not like my life. <laughs> She's had some interesting slips. Like she had something during the Australian Open where she mentioned how Sergei Sakovsky wanted candy. Right. And I was like, Maria, you live, look at your Twitter. Like, you follow, you know, like, all these really ridiculous, you know, high-end things. And then you're mentioning Sergei Sakovsky? But everyone, like, but those are my right. favorite moments. Wait, when she the cracks. moments when she cracks and she slips. And because she has those moments in press as well. Yep. Right? Where there's a moment where you're like, she is debating whether to get real or to just stick on message. And more often than not, she will stick on message. Um, not all the time, but, but, give, but something in her tone will let you know there's something around the bend there that she's, she's not showing you. Yeah, she seems to be pretty aware that like of the difference between comments made in black and white and comments made face to face. In yeah. other words, she'll let you know what she's thinking face to face, but she won't say it, and she'll say she'll stick to party line. But yeah, so like those little moments where she breaks are hilarious, and so yeah, like the Stakovsky moment, you know, when she made a crack about like players like what is up with all these tennis boyfriends carrying everybody's bag like their tennis girlfriends like uh, racket bags and stuff and yeah when she gets a little snarky i like i like snarky sharapova one weird quirk i think is really funny is how she clearly has never discovered youtube because all of the videos she links to are on vimeo <laughs> mm -hmm. which amuses me because they're like super high-end artsy videos um, well, she yeah. is super high-end, Courtney. She is super high-end, and she will let you know that. And you know what? All power to her. I mean, I, I have a hard time criticizing Sharapova just because I'm like, rip on her and make fun of her all you want or find her, like, weirdly amusing. But, like, that shit works. She like, gets it done. She, she gets, gets it, it done. done. I mean, she's, like, the highest-paid female athlete in the world. Like, <laughs> okay. Like, who am I to be like, oh, your Twitter sucks. Like, clearly it's working. <laughs> I will say I'm still surprised at how few followers she's That's your. On, that is especially... your thing. Especially since she has like 9 million fans on Facebook or something ridiculous. Well, I think that her thing, the thing that she hasn't realized is she needs to tweet more pictures of herself. And that's like a really stupid, stupid thing. She can have Maria Karolinko tell her that. Yeah, like that's all Kiri does. And like Maria Karolinko recently sort of took over her own Twitter. And not, since then, it's been like, she's destroying. Like her In terms of power rankings, she's like the hot, like the hot, like the hot mover like she's just firing up the the twitter power rankings really see i'm i don't know I'm, I, it's I hilarious find, it's funny i just find it sort of i find it maybe um it's gauche and like kind of like tacky but it works i don't it know might be, it might be vapid almost on a profound level you know she's some she's come full circle on her vapidity and she's just like 
It's so, so I think someone said this about the movie Clueless once. It's like it, at <laughs> some point a certain amount of shallowness is automatically deep because mm-hmm. how can you not? How can you stay so shallow? I think, think Karolinko's uh, just that simple, though. Yeah, I don't I think she's simple like stupid. I just think that she's just that simple. Like she's a simple person. It didn't. Ben, it didn't even dawn on her that she had a connection to Stella McCartney to like help design her wedding dress until you brought it up. Yeah, she uh in Wells. Yeah, she might not always connect dots, but she <laughs> she seems to be having a good time with herself. Yeah. And with her Ovechkin who's doing very well right now. And she has helped turn that team around nearly single handedly. So good for her. I give her all the credit. Completely. Oh, as you should. We are recording this on Sunday evening. After Adam Scott's triumph in Augusta, um, a triumph unlike any other at the <laughs> Masters, we got a lot of questions. We were tweeting a lot, I guess, about sort of differences between golf and tennis, or just comes up when you're on a tennis sort of neighborhood in Twitter watching a golf tournament. That's sort of the lens you see things through. So there's a lot of interesting contrasts, I think, between golf and tennis, which are often lumped together as sports, but really... I think have a lot more different than they have in common in a lot of ways. So let's see some of the questions we got about that. Paul Anderson panders who asks us, uh, what has golf done to make it a much more popular sport compared to tennis in the U S that's completely fair. Courtney. I mean, golf is definitely the bigger sport of the two. You never get a tennis moment. Like you have with the masters where seemingly everybody in the country is watching it. Tennis never gets that all the way. What, has golf done to make it bigger? Why is golf bigger? Okay. First of all, I don't know the numbers here. I will admit that, which is that I would presume that more people, well, do more people play golf than tennis? Maybe not. Mm, Maybe I don't not. know. Probably Actually, close. That's probably close. Probably close. You know, in terms of popularity, yeah, I mean, it is, it is hard to figure out. Obviously, right now, golf has Tiger. And I think that, I, I mean, I, I don't, personally for me, I don't really know anything about golf pre-Tiger. Tiger is who is the guy who got me into golf. And I watch not because of him now. Now I watch because of certain other players. But um, but I still can't deny that I still watch because of him. I mean, there is, you know, like I think I sent out a tweet. There's Schadenfreude and then there's Tigerfreude. Yeah. I definitely was watching the Masters partly motivated in to kind of hope Tiger would fail and take some sort of sick joy out of that i don't know if that's sick i don't think that's sick well i don't know but that but that, i admit i mean obviously i was i'm a big adam scott fan and have been for years so there was that but and obviously so i'm in a good mood tiger a lot of it was just kind of he would swing and i would just hope that it would go into the trees and when it did <laughs> i would just cackle and you know it's very simple but all that is just to say that within america we have a the biggest star in the sport the guy upon whom golf like rests on his strong shoulders. Yeah. There is no Tiger Woods. No, I don't think I don't care who else is doing what they're doing today on that on the greens. Like you would not have had as many people paying attention in the first place. No, completely agree. And I do think that's a thing that's key in the Tiger era. So he really put some big distance between golf and tennis on that front. Mm-hmm. Immense golf, immense tennis. Um women's like tennis if Roger Federer was an American yeah, tennis no, would be freaking huge. huge. The, tennis, tennis was huge was... during the days of like McEnroe and Precisely. Connors, and those were just the guys who you know led it in the American marketplace. And that matters for things like uh, as much as people say, oh, you know, people just like watching good tennis. Um, no, they don't care who it's played by. Mm, tennis fans, yes, but in terms of getting people into the sport, 
helps to have a character who they can sort of glom on. For example, like I just looked it up and obviously there are some mitigating circumstances in these numbers. But so last year, the U S open, the last day of the golf for the U S open was They got a 6.6 TV share for the women's final at the U S open, which was between Serena and Vika. They got a 3.9 and the men's final between Novak and Andy, which was on a Monday, Monday. got a 2.3. Yeah. Okay, so, like, obviously there's there's a lot of different ways that you can work with those numbers and whatever, but one of the things that you notice is that, like, the women drew more than the men, and who was in that women's final? An American. Serena Williams. And she yeah. is an American. She and is not to mention, she, was, she was also going up against the NFL that day. Yes. So that was no small feat for her to get that. I was, that was one of the other things that I was going to bring up, is that tennis, all of our majors come up at the worst times. Yeah, largely, yeah. They're never in good spots. I mean, obviously the U.S. Open, which is the major for the states, we can't compete with freaking football. It's just not gonna happen. No. And it's it always takes place in the opening on opening weekend, or at least now it has been, um, of the NFL. That's yeah. brutal. The, what did the Masters have to com- compete with this week? Katowice. Katowice and Kobe Bryant spraining his or like tearing his rupturing his Achilles. Like, right, which is more of a sports center highlight than an event. Right, yeah, right. Nothing, like there was, nothing. in terms of news, it really dominated, and it just has a really nice spot in the calendar. So, what does Wimbledon go up against, though? Wimbledon's in a fairly. They have the World Cup every once in a while. And yeah, I last year it was Euro. the Euros. Last year, yeah. It was so the I guess Euros. every other year they have that, but that's less of an American thing. I mean, the other years Wimbledon does okay. Yeah, but Wimbledon yeah. is okay, but then you have the time differences. That's why you can't really compare it with any of the other ones because you have, you can only compare the American. Masters. So in other words, you can compare the Masters, you can compare the U.S. Open Golf Championship, and you can compare the U.S. Open. I think that once you start trying to compare Wimbledon and the French and the Aussie, then you start dealing with time differences and it just doesn't work because the bottom line is people are asleep. And you're asking a lot for people to be awake at a certain time to watch the Wimbledon final, you know, the the French Open final and the Aussie Open final. So that's a bit different. But Let's let's, let's also talk about something that's a little bit connected to why people have gravitated towards golf, I guess, as a country, the way the two are covered differently. Yeah. Because when we were listening to these golf commentators, we didn't get a question about this, but this is something I definitely want to talk about because the golf commentators were unbelievable. Shocking. It, it was actually shocking. And I think a lot of it is the masters and this weird culture of intimidation that the Augusta National Club has uh, put into them, yeah. um, where they've kicked out commentators for saying really innocuous things in the past. Yep. And Anything that, that, that broaches criticizing the patrons or the tournament itself. And not calling and... them patrons. You can't call them fans. You can't call them spectators. They are the patrons. It they is, are the patrons. It is speak of these like, hushed tones that are so reverent about this golf tournament, about this organization, this wonderful course that, you know, didn't let in any African-Americans until 1990. But you can't say that. And women until 2012. Right, you can't say that either. And it's just, you know, it's unbelievable amount of propagandizement of this tournament and also of the players to a lesser extent. I mean, some of these players, if if someone shanks a ball into the trees, they're never going to say that was a mistake. That was bad. He did bad. He did this wrong. They're just going to say, like, Oh, the course just didn't agree with his shot there. Yeah. You know, oh, it's just oh, this very ball, passive ball, way of The ball got that. away from him. Yeah. Like, you just, know, it's like, well, he kind of fucked up. So. Yeah, no, there's like no <laughs> no personal responsibility for your actions involved in golf. And I think golfers, I don't think the golfers themselves necessarily necessarily operate in that mode. I think they do realize when they play well and play badly and they sort of own their shit. But the commentators just don't call them anything. Yeah. And it's this very positive thing. And also the way the golf 
tournaments are formatted is in this much more um, condensed way. Mm-hmm. So you really only have time to focus on people who are near the top of the leaderboard. If you have a bad day in golf or a bad tournament, you're going to get pretty much ignored, which you must like. Phil Mickelson, for example, big deal American golfer, barely got any coverage this tournament because he was never in contention. He was out there going 2-3 over par uh, every round and just sort of hid. And, you know, if you ask somebody who just watched a tournament just on TV what they thought about Phil Mickelson's tournament, they'd be like, oh, did he even play this event? I don't know. Rory McIlroy was like a right. non-issue on the last day. He was a non-issue right. on the second last day too. But and when yeah. Rory McIlroy choked really badly two years ago at the Masters, he was up by a ton at the beginning of the day and then lost by a lot. He went, went like I don't know, let's say ten over or something on the last day. Well, they barely showed any of it by the end. They were just like Bubba okay. Watson, defending champion. Yeah, he, he t- took ten shots to get through the twelfth today, Which and then it, they, like, yeah, and it was it was he, they didn't really show it. They didn't show it at all. I mean, the most you saw Bubba Watson was in the tr- was in the the jacket ceremony when he was there to give it to and place it on on Adam Scott's shoulders. I mean, it's just incredible. I, I thought that was a really interesting observation from you um, that I had never really thought about the fact that within golf you can suck and hide, yeah. and within tennis you can suck and it's still there, and we're all watching you. And whether it's a dodgy stream or ESPN or Tennis Channel, like we see you. Blah, blah, if you're, blah, on, blah, if you're on a big court, you are there until you exit the tournament, yeah. basically. I mean, like, look at Donald Young last year at the U.S. Open. Had this right. terrible run, and he happened to draw into this match with Federer in the first round, which was bad luck. But even if he hadn't drawn into that match, he still would have been on a TV court, more than likely, and still would have been shown some, because he was a story, um, and an American. And he was out there for all two hours of his beating that he took, and on national TV, and the spotlight was 50% on him the, that entire match. I mean, that's just something you don't get in tennis. And I think that's a lot of what I like about tennis over golf is that you really sort of get alone time with these people when you're watching them. Well, and that's why... You really get to see the individuals. Golf is really jumping all over the place. Yeah, I mean, I I think that that's... I think somebody had sent me some tweets a few weeks ago. Maybe it was during the Australian Open. Just being like, why are you so obsessed about the stupidest things? Like, you obsess about kits and visors and facial expressions and this and that. And I'm like, because I'm staring at this player for three to six hours. Yeah. And I'm looking at them close up, like if I'm watching it on TV, and I'm st- I'm literally staring at this person's face. There's no helmet, there's no padding, there's no equipment that's hiding them from you, and and the cameras are right there, and they got every single angle of. I think that's a huge benefit for tennis. I yeah. think that especially for you talk about the highest paid athletes in a lot of sports. I mean, a bunch of them are, you know, Sharapova. Obviously, we talked about before. Uh, Federer and Nadal both make a fair amount of money and more than any golfer but Tiger Woods, I guess, until Rory's recent deal with Nike. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is, you know, when you're watching a Grand Slam final, it's a long event that's focusing on these two guys solely and really on them, close-ups of their face. You really feel like you get to know them a lot better mm-hmm. when you're watching a tennis match the person is playing than when you're watching golf because if you even like a person who is a major contender in this tournament let's say like jason day or something you add all the time he got on camera together over sunday and it probably adds up to like 35 minutes maybe tops just because it jumped around so much and tennis you play a grand slam final less four hours and and you get two hours of solid coverage just for you and doesn't that make it like i mean imagine Okay, so you have golf, right? You have, yeah. like, whatever. You're So I don't know what the initial field looks like when they start on Thursday, but then it gets cut to about 50 to 60 players, right? Yeah. So what if, like, your favorite player, like, your favorite golfer 
is well make it easy we'll make it phil nicholson yeah okay let's say phil is your favorite golfer guess what dude you didn't get to see him hit like a sh- like barely a shot barely today yeah. except for maybe his last shot and then so how does like fa- how does golf fandom work you gotta like a lot of different people i guess and you gotta sort of have an opinion on everybody and I guess that happens in tennis too. I mean, you watch a match everything. and you eventually develop an opinion on whoever's playing. That's so weird, though. I had just, I mean, it just kind of dawned on me. I was just kind of thinking, like, what if you were, if your favorite tennis player was, and we're talking Phil Mickelson, right? So big name, like whatever. So yeah. let's say, I don't know, like, what's the equivalent in tennis? Like, if your favorite, favorite tennis, tennis player, player, Phil Mickelson's a big deal. That's like having your favorite be, I don't know, Andy Murray. Yeah, like Andy Murray, and but you never got to see Andy Murray play unless he made the final. But he was playing, but you just didn't get to see it. <laughs> yeah, not at all. I mean, That's even crazy. like even like uh, the Chinese kid who did so well, Guan Tiang Lang. I mean, he made the cut. He made the cut, and they never showed him again. Right, and I it's mean, not like there's an option. It seems like where you can go online and you can like follow. Like there's still they have cameras some following, but not not as much as they could. I mean, they sit ideally at the holes, you have an like, ISO cam on everybody. Ideally, but yeah, I guess the CBS coverage was there was a there was like. They were producing out of Amen Corner, and they were producing 15 and 16, and then they were following a specific group. So that was like what you could get online. But and then you had the CBS coverage, which was pretty much just like the top people, and that was it. But yeah, like if your favorite like golfer is Luke Donald, like tough tomatoes, like you didn't probably get to see him. Right, and it just comes there's so many different moving parts in a golf tournament that it becomes really hard to, you know, key in unless you're really watching one person. Right, like if you ask somebody, oh, what was adam scott's tournament like after he won be like uh he you know missed a few putts i guess on sunday and then made some at the end i don't know <laughs> he it's missed some and made some and in the end he won <laughs> it's all very rushed and it's uh i don't know i it reminded me why i prefer tennis especially the part about you know the accountability because that was really really striking to me just this amount of golfers are praised so wonderfully for every time they get the ball in the hole and then when they miss it's just like oh you know things happen I think that's a lot of why player people like watching it. It's much just more of a passive experience, I guess. It's like visual wallpaper. It is. Looking at pretty lawns that are, you know, cut in certain ways and little mini beaches and, oh, look, there's a creek, you know. Yeah, no, my mom, who knows nothing about uh, golf at all, I basically spent both Saturday and Sunday just lying on the couch, like watching the Masters. And finally on, uh, I guess yesterday, I think, she finally like sat down. She's like, why are you watching golf? And I was like, it's really interesting, Mom. It's actually really, really fun to watch. And then she just kind of sat down and kind of was like asking about Tiger, just like whatever golf words she knew. Like, oh, is Tiger playing? Where's that Chinese kid? <laughs> like, yeah. whatever. And then within five minutes, she's like, you know, like a, a shot. It was a commercial break. And it comes back and you see the big pink azaleas and the creek and all the slow-mo pictures of Augusta. And she's like, oh, it's so pretty. And yeah. She sat there for the next two hours, like just watching. Just And all that she was talking about was how pretty it was. And tennis courts are not pretty. Tennis courts are not pretty. It's brutal. And so there's that. And I think that the other thing, too, in terms of getting back to the original question, which is, like, why is golf more popular? It is the fact that you had a 14-year-old Chinese kid make the cut and a 42-year-old, 42-year-old chain smoker, like, who probably should have won. Like, you know, like, the fact is, is that a lot of, I mean, especially in terms of the demographic that golf goes for, which is a very wealthy iBanker, trader, like, whatever, rich people. Spending a lot of money on destination golf trips, on equipment, on lessons, on driving range time. I mean, people throw money at golf in an unbelievable way. It's shocking. The golf industry is shockingly profitable. Right. Tennis, Tennis tries to be that. They try to have tennis resorts. And tennis destinations, but it's just not the same at all. Because honestly, 
why would you take, I don't, I mean, speaking for me personally, why would I ever like fly, I don't know, to some resort for tennis when in, let's say, uh, the Bahamas, when I know that the tennis court that's up five blocks from my house is the same size. Right. The tennis court court is a tennis court is a tennis court, whereas golf courses are all, I mean, they're all unique. So, but the other thing too, is that like anybody, and especially guys sitting at home, they can find a a, a golfer and be like, yeah, I can kind of relate to that dude because he kind of looks like me. And like, he's kind of got a paunch belly. I do too. Like, and they just, the golfers are just like people who do what these people do, like what ordinary people do. They just do it better. Yeah. And they're wearing like business cash. It's like, I wear business casual with sweaters. And... <laughs> I wear polo shirts and pants. Like seriously, like I was a lawyer in like it is a firm in Silicon Valley. Like that is literally business casual is like slacks and a golf shirt. Partners would come in and bulk like golf caps and their umbrellas were golf umbrellas. I mean, it was embarrassing. But yeah, so there's kind of this connection that people seem that men, particularly older men, seem to be able to have with golf in the way that they can't really have it with tennis. And yeah, so it's when a bunch they... of white dudes wearing slacks, exactly, What's not like for golf, it's very for white. People. It's super white. The crowd at Augusta, my <laughs> God, they finally showed, they finally caught two black people on camera when like a ball <laughs> rolled under a tree or something, and it was just like, oh, it was, oh, it was jarring because I mean, yeah. for all the you know talk about how the, the club there is evolving or somehow being more inclusive and eh, eh, no, no no not so much it's, it's one still of those people condoleezza very rice, much that was the, that would be the third person yeah <laughs> yeah no pretty yeah. much related question to that um from curtis 07 who says he didn't win the masters but angel cabrera has won two majors despite not being much of a factor outside the majors and he was ranked 249th in the world coming into this year's masters who would be a tennis equivalent to him? I can't think of anybody in particular. And then he adds that he is trilled for Adam. First he dates Anna, now wins the Masters. Dude is living the life. Am I right? So, so go ahead, Courtney. No, no. Adam Scott is winning life. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you first. Talk about why you are a professed, obvious Anna Ivanovich admirer, fan, and she has an ex-boyfriend and Adam Scott, on and off boyfriend. They could be back on someday, who knows? Those kids might just make it after all. <laughs> Why do Anna Ivanovich fans, including Curtis, like Adam Scott so much? Because usually, you know, people don't have so much affection for, for the ex. Well, I, I mean, I don't know if the entire Ivanovich nation liked Adam Scott. I, I sense that that is generally the case, just because I, just, I didn't really see a lot of tweets of people being like, oh, screw that guy, or like, whatever. But yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, I don't know why people... Why Ivanovich fans like him. I mean, he seems like a nice guy, which is pretty much validated by just everything that everybody was saying today. And that's why a lot of people like Anna. Exactly. And people, you know, and they were like a cute couple. He's a really good looking dude. Like I was a big Adam Scott fan before he started dating Anna Ivanovich. Trust me. Um, so, you know, when you're lying on the couch for six hours watching golf and you get to stare at Adam Scott's face, you're okay. Like, you don't feel like it's a wasted afternoon. Probably when so many other guys look like Angel Cabrera. Seriously. Well, Angel Cabrera, like, I found, I find to be completely adorable and kind of like an uncle kind of way. Angel Cabrera, I will say, I can say, you know, because I don't cover the sport actively, is by far my favorite golfer. Because he, to me, really hammers home how golf isn't necessarily a sport. (laughs) It's a game. And I was talking to Caroline Wozniacki about I asked Caroline Wozniacki about this in Charleston, basically if she thought that, because I, I think, obviously, and I think the numbers bear this out, their golf results are way more random than tennis. For sure. And she was just like, yeah, I think, you know, in golf it's a lot easier for a guy who maybe isn't as good or as sharp or as, you know, consistent to have a big result. 
That's absolutely what Cabrera does. And I don't think that there ever could be a real full Cabrera in tennis. You just couldn't be that, A, out of shape, B, inconsistent, and, you know, to, to get in, to, to well, be a, I mean, have a big result. You just couldn't do it. Modern day, right now, isn't it basically Sam Sozer? Being Cabrera? She's a, yeah. She's not a chance. No title. Like, barely any titles. Like, what, three titles in her entire career. One of them happens to be the U.S. Open. Plays, like, the match of her life to win it. Like yeah, no, but she was match. she was a top tenner when she won it, and she'd already made right, it. Right, but how? But but how much of that has to do with the fact that that's how, like, tennis rankings are done as opposed to the golf rankings? Golf rankings are completely haphazard and stupid. Like even like golf writers like roll their eyes when it comes to like they talk about who's the number one golfer, and that's about it because yeah, the they rest never of the they never say oh he's the number two. Right, that's not a relevant number? thing. Yeah. Whereas, like, for us with the computerized rankings, it's a thing. It's supposed it to, like... the draws, yeah. Yeah, it determines the draws. And also, it is supposed to reflect your skill level at that moment, right? I mean, it's supposed to... It is a ranking within the within tennis. Whereas in golf, I just don't get this. They just care about number one and everything else. And most uh, listening to kind of golf writers and, and reading a lot of the golf stuff this past week, you just really get the sense that no one takes the golf ranking seriously. So I don't think that, obviously, he, like, Cabrera right, he was, didn't he was something. 249 because he was, he was... Had There's way more points. golfers than tennis players, too. Oh, I don't think so, actually. I mean... You don't because, think so? Well, no, because the golf, the way the golf tours work is there's a lot less sort of movement between them. In, in tennis, you can jump, you can be a player who's ranked, like, 115 and play the slams and play challengers and play uh, tour events and some qualies and stuff. Golf, there's a you know a Q school process where you have to get your tour card, mm. and it's much more of a, a you know less transient. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for Cabrera, I just don't I, I don't think that tennis would allow somebody with that to get through, and that's the reason why so many different people have been able to win majors. A lot of them who aren't you know great great legendary players in the last few years, because in tennis you run into somebody and they can stop you. Well, that's true. That's a very good against, point. If you go up against somebody, if you're a guy, let's say like Cabrera, and um, you, I'm trying to think of what tennis player he would relate to, but you're like a big, big wild hitter that just sort of shoots from the hip. You're like a, uh, um, who, who is like, like that? Like a James Blake. Like a James Blake, sure. Like a James Blake. You go out there, you do your James Blake thing, maybe you're in the zone, but somebody can, you know, give you more spins, they can play defense against you, basically. There's no defense in golf. Mm-hmm. If you're against somebody even in a playoff even like a head-to-head match play situation you don't change how you're playing based on how the other guy's playing it's all very Mm self-contained and you can't interfere getting the other guy's lane at all tennis is absolutely all about that if you have if you are a player with one of the best forehands in the game but you have no backhand whatsoever your opponent's just going to pick on your backhand and that'll work in golf you can't exploit somebody's weaknesses you just can't do it so i think that's what lets a lot of people through and i don't think there ever could be a guy who was, for whatever reasons, as inconsistent to be 249 in tennis. I just don't think he would be able to get through in that sport. Well, 249, you wouldn't be able to get into certain tournaments. I mean, yeah, you could get into slam qualities maybe on an occasional year, but yeah, just wouldn't happen. So, but I do like I do like that he you know, it's out there being a jolly sort of guy smoking. He used to smoke on the course a lot more than he does now. They might have told mm-hmm. him to stop that, but. He was apparently well, smoking. He was... he was smoking the parking lot. I heard afterwards. Right. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, it's that's when he became like one of my favorite 
golf oh, was, was where he won, he, like whatever yeah. the mass. It wasn't. What it was, was the, the most, U.S. Open? It was the U.S. Open, and the yeah, camera just caught tiger. him getting into. Yeah. And he was smoking like while he's walking down the fairway. It was, it was tremendous. It I was, was like, tremendous. "You are my favorite. I love you. This is not a sport." No. <laughs> all, of the, all of the above. Yeah, and so it has to be frustrating though for guys like Roy McIlroy put in all this work to keep up with their athletic girlfriend running up these hills in Monaco that he just is struggling to get up while she's like there. Come on, let's do five more. And he's, you know, dying. Puts in all this hard work, lifts these weights, gets in pretty good shape. You know, it's a pretty good athlete at this point. Build himself out of nothing. And then he gets, you know, stomped by this, you know, Cabrera guy. And there's nothing he can do about it. Don't you get this? I mean, I just get returns on fitness in golf for sure. But they have, that's what I don't understand. It's like T- Tiger came in and, like, everybody says that he brought fitness into the game and, like, whatever. But no... Tiger, the if the people are focusing on the fitness thing, that's wrong. What Tiger brought to the game was a tremendous amount of intensity and mental strength. Yeah, and that's what these players should be emulating, not trying to get like a six pack. You know what I mean? Like what Angel Cabrera was able to do over the last couple of days was just handle pressure better than everybody else. Right, and that's what and he has in common with Tiger. I mean, exactly. Even if that means that he's just like being passive and he's like, whatever, like, that's okay. If that's how you handle pressure, but it works for you and you can still perform at your best, then great. Like, you don't have to look like a, like, constipated for six hours like Tiger does. No. Um, Everybody does it differently. But, like, it's really, to me in golf, and this is one thing that I thought was really interesting when I was listening to so much golf commentary, is that to me in golf, everybody has the shots. It's just a matter of executing. Oh, totally. And that and that really comes down to the mental aspect. And I really just feel like the commentators just never talk about the mental aspect. Whereas All they like, talk about tennis, is how unforgiving the course is. Right. Or like tradition. they just tell you what happened. Like he swings. Oh, it's drifting right. Oh, that's a draw. Oh, and it's about two feet. Good lie. It's like, yeah, I can they see nev- that, man. They like, never, ever break down like what went wrong with the swing or anything. It's yeah, such never. a never. Like it's, I would like terrible. to learn. I would like to know. You know, as as one who, sadly, I'm probably a better golfer than I am a tennis player, which Ben will understand what that means. Having never seen you golf, I believe that. I know, but you've seen me play tennis. Exactly. exactly. That was the joke. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I would like to learn and they just really kind of don't. Whereas like with tennis, like I feel like I learned so much from the commentary a lot of times and stuff. So I don't know. It's a bit weird. It is. And I think it's just it's interesting that golf has come out ahead with all this stuff. And I, I get it. It's just, you know, tennis, I think, is. A big time commitment for a lot of people too, and it's not sort of a. Uh, I don't know. I think Wimbledon has a bunch of Mastersy stuff, and I was sort of thinking about parsing the differences between Wimbledon Masters coverage because Wimbledon also gets you know oh these hollowed grounds and this wonderful tradition and it's so sort of stuffy but in this wonderful historic way. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Wimbledon just says it with so much less active obnoxiousness, and Wimbledon doesn't try to necessarily hide it, its scars or its past right. uh, problems, or Wimbledon doesn't take itself as seriously. I don't think. Uh-huh. Wimbledon doesn't well, take itself, itself as... unbelievably seriously. It's like, shocking. Unbelievably seriously. Like, when you actually do... I mean, I encourage everyone to actually Google and research, like, the history of the Masters. Because if you didn't do that, you would never know. No, never. And that is, I guess, in a weird way, a credit to Augusta National and how they control the narrative of their it's own event. They have some yeah. good PR. But, like, you know, like, the fact that, like, all the caddies, you know, obviously the boiler suits and whatever, but, like, you know, all the caddies used to always be black. Like, there were no white caddies. 
And it was like, and there were no black members. There were no black black members, but it was always like in the early years of the tournament. Not even early. I mean, re- I mean, this wasn't like a huge change that was like recent, like super recent. But you used to like basically just be white golfers and black caddies, like caddies that were like assigned. Though. Like this was what the, the the club wanted. They wanted this look. It's just incredible. I'm just like whatever. Like so, it's hard, you know, because I love the golf. I love the course. I love the drama that builds on that course, especially. But Man, that tournament's a fucking joke. Yeah. Or the, sorry, the organization, I guess. It's just it's just impressive how they don't get called on their shit. Yeah. Or they don't just have that. Really, it is such a controlled broadcast. There's so much, yeah, so much. It's not spontaneous and not journalistic to say the least, or just you know anything about it. Right. I mean, and tennis is no like, I mean, tennis has its own like conflicts of interest when it comes to broadcasting. And we've talked about them extensively on this podcast, but it's nothing like that. Yeah. You know, you can't completely hide (laughs) storylines. One more question from Curtis about golf. Um, He says in men's tennis, 30 of the last 32 majors have been won by either Federer Nadal or Djokovic, with Murray and Del Potro each winning one. In golf, there have been 17 different winners in the last 18 majors, with Rory McIlroy being the only one to be able to win twice in that span. And Rory's twice is the, you know, most of anybody over the last, you know, almost going on four and a half years. Um, Which do you prefer, Courtney? Do you prefer parity is in golf or the uh, consistent head-to-heads and late rounds of slams that men's tennis has? We certainly complain about sometimes about the ATP. Mm-hmm. Uh, but which do you prefer? Oh, I prefer stability. Oh, God, yes. I, I mean, mean can... you need somebody to root for. I mean, you know, at, at the end of the day, I mean, I think that that's one of the things that's really important is that whatever the sport, whatever the game, whatever it is that you're watching, you need someone to root for. And in order for your passion to grow and your and your your love of the sport or the game to grow, like you need to be able to count on that person to be somebody who's rooting, who's making it deep and who has a chance to win every single week. Yeah. And when it's just a freaking open field, I mean, obviously it sounds a bit like hypocritical because I have I am on record as saying that I kind of loved the WTA chaos. But yeah. that was not related to like the good of the sport. That was just my own weird like And WTA chaos also <laughs> makes way more sense than anything the PGA has done over the last four and a half years, I think. Um, I mean, you saw for the first two days of this tournament at the Masters, Mark Leishman was in the lead, and nobody had ever heard of Mark Leishman. Like, I do love ever. how everybody like spoke about Mark Leishman as though he was like a thing. Like, all of a sudden, he was, like, top of the leaderboard, and everybody's like, oh, yeah, totally, this guy. Oh, yes, and he won Hartford last year. Yeah, yeah Hartford's not a tournament. What are you talking about? Like, <laughs> trying to bring up your dossier you and everyone, make everyone seem like they're a Mark Leishman, Leishman, you know, uh, expert all of a sudden, no. Yep. And tennis, you have, when someone makes a run through a tournament, if you have someone pull, let's say, like a Melanie Udan or something, um, there's a sort of gradual progression through it, and they do they beat people to sort of earn their scalps as they move along the tournament. It's very rare to have somebody make a deep run at a tournament without beating anybody. It happens, but it's uh, it's very rare. Whereas in golf, you can just sort of quietly sneak through, you know, I'm Mark Washman. I just happen to be here at six under. Whoops, you just have to go. take care of your business. Yeah, exactly. And it goes back well. to what we said you play before. Well, you're up there. And I was just imagining like being a golf reporter having to write these stories about how Mark Leishman won the major won the Masters. Like, ugh, why what would be the point? Like how I don't understand how you could be someone who writes about golf like as a beat 
if you know there's going to be no rhyme or reason for who wins the next tournament. That's tough. That's tough. Tennis, you really can do a pretty good job prognosticating, at least making very educated guesses. Mm-hmm. Here people are saying, oh, Tiger's the favorite. Yeah, but I mean, that's only one guy. There's just so many moving pieces. And having the stability that tennis um, has provided, men's and women's tennis both. I mean, women's tennis really, even at its most chaotic moments, never had anything what golf is doing right now in terms of just complete, utter... Um, you know, a yard sale of of, ma- of major titles going on, as they say in Canada. It's rough. I totally agree. It is. It is. The last question we're going to answer in this show came from our Facebook page, and it is from Kevin Charles in Candenza, who asks us what are our favorite tennis books. He says, I've read Wertheim's Strokes of Genius, uh, Tigner and Cronin's books on Borg, McEnroe, Terrible Splendor, John McPhee's Levels of the Game, and Anything on Tennis by David Foster Wallace. I have Feinstein's, uh, John Feinstein's Hardcourt's on my to-read list, and Agassiz's autobiography is the only autobiography I've read. Any great tennis books you're missing? So, Courtney, what is on your tennis shelf? And I know that you've recently tweeted that you're dedicating yourself towards, you know, plunging back into the tennis uh, pantheon of literature. Yeah, no, so I'm kind of committed myself um, I guess it's kind of a New Year's resolution, although it's happening now, so uh, maybe not. But basically to read one nonfiction, one fiction, um, one graphic novel, and one tennis-related book a month. God, that's a lot of books. It's a lot of books. Four books. I will say, for someone who's a writer by trade, I wound up not reading that many no, books. No, and, and that was part, kind of part of it. This was my own kind of chastising of myself uh, yeah. upon reflection of, like, I don't think that you can be a good writer if you're not reading. I agree, um, yeah. And so... I I've, I've definitely slacked on the reading last year uh, but both, quite a bit. Both of us, this is a sort of tangent from this question, both of us read a lot of stuff, though, that's, like, in more of the format we write. We True. read a lot of, like, online, like, essays and blogs and news reports and stuff like that. I mean, it's not that like we true. don't, not like we sit around watching cartoons all day. This is this is very true. Like I do, I consume a lot of content on online, and, and more often than not, it's some sort of long form piece than you know a list of forty two pictures of a cat. Um, so although yeah. although you did really like <laughs> that that slideshow of the corgis getting into college, <laughs> it was so good. <laughs> yes, there's a BuzzFeed post. You can Google it. Corgis get into corgis get accepted to college. I think maybe. Corby's on college admissions deadline day. Yeah, exactly. It's just the greatest thing ever. I was dying. I just could not stop laughing in the Charleston press room. And then you would like be like, I gotta go back. I gotta go back. Yeah, I I, I start all over again. I've booked the market. I it's just incredible. But yeah, so I've been I've been committing to that because I have to say that I'm super jealous of all the books that that Kevin has already read uh, that are related to tennis. And um, because a lot of them I actually haven't uh, read. The one that stands out in my own mind of one that was really riveting to me and then quite eye-opening was A Terrible Splendor. That is probably like like the most interesting book to me. And I, I really like nonfiction. So it's just kind of perfect and historical fiction and involved Nazis and like gays. It was like amazing. <laughs> and it actually, that book ended up being the basis this past week. Yeah. Extra mustard. Yeah, for SI Extra Mustard, they put a call out within the writers for athletes who are deserving of a historical biopic in honor of 42 for Jackie Robinson. Yeah. Um, and I picked uh, Baron Gottfried von Krum uh, from that book. So, yeah, so that's probably the best one I've read. I mean, I read High Strong, which I thought was just really well written. Um, if you like Steve Tigner's writing that he does on tennis.com, you will love the way that High Strong is done. And, and who doesn't really? 
Who exactly. doesn't like Steve Tickner's writing? Who doesn't like I, 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 I let's throw let's throw down person who doesn't like Steve Tickner's writing because I've I've words. Um, but I also read Cronin's epic, Matt Cronin's ep- epic, which is like interesting to read both of them because they're basically kind of about the same era and they came out at the exact same time. Yeah, but they're just told in two different ways, which I thought was really really cool. Like especially just from a writing perspective, just to yeah. see two different writers kind of attack the same subject and come out differently. Um, I thought was really like interesting and a really good study. So that was probably the most recent one that I read, I think, was maybe High Strong. I'm trying to think. But anyways, right now on deck is Short Circuit. Is that the one that I said I yeah. was reading? Yeah. Yeah. So I've only just gotten into it, but it's... Let me pull up. The By Misha? Misha. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I'm reading now. But how about you, Ben? Sorry, um, I wasn't really helpful, but... That's okay. I, no, I, I have... Read- I've probably read about like four or five tennis books or so. I'm trying to think while you were talking. Um, I looked up on my shelf and saw that I did read Breakpoint by Vince Spadia, <laughs> which I enjoyed. I like always like sort of the outsiders in tennis and their sort of view on things. And he definitely has that. It's weird because it's sort of – it's like anyone who started a blog will sympathize with Vince Spadia because he starts out like really detailed at the beginning. And the <laughs> entries get way more spaced out as the book goes along and much shorter – and then it's like, sorry, I haven't been writing more, blah, blah, blah. Sorry, I haven't been writing more, blah, 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 blah. It's like that, but it's, you know, pretty no-holds-barred on terms of talking about problems with how Patrick McEnroe, how, you know, James Blake steals some woman he's trying to pick up and picks her up himself, you know, behind-the-scenes stuff of the actual day-to-day life of players we don't get as much and pretty candid. Other books I've read, the last tennis book I read was an autobiography of Martina Navratilova. Um, called Martina, which was written by her, obviously. Ghost written by George V.C., who writes for the New York Times. And that came out in, like, 1984 or 1985, around there. So still during her career. And I just feel like it really captured her voice incredibly well. It was very blunt, but also very political, and goes through also about her defection and her problems with the media regarding her sexuality and not winning the U.S. Open, how she was seen as this big choker, which is a weird sort of thing to look at now, you know, Mm-hmm. since she won, I don't know, something like probably like 10 majors in between the time that book came out and now. So seeing what, you know, she felt about her career. Uh, and I thought that was just pretty interesting. I also read, have read uh, Venus Envy by John Wertheim. Mm-hmm. I'd recommend a um, book about the WTA tour in the year 2000, which is a pretty good year to pick as it turned out. This rise of Venus and Serena. Davenport was in there. Hingis Sellas was still around. Capriati. It's a lot of... Mary Pierce won the French Open that year. There's just a lot of different pieces in that year that I thought were really good, and he handled it very well and sort of wove the pieces together nicely in uh, sort of anecdotal ways each chapter. And then um, another book that I've enjoyed and recommended to Courtney, I know, several times is the one that uh, Kevin mentioned, uh, Hard Courts by John Feinstein, which is similar a little bit in format to Venus Envy in that it covers a single year. It covers the year 1990 and writes about the ATP and WTA tours then. And really goes a lot into the business side of it um, in terms of talking about appearance fees and negotiation for appearance fees and putting out numbers for how much each player was getting for each tournament, which I just found really interesting seeing, you know, what the price was on everyone's head variously. And I would love to see something like that come out in 2013 because that can be pretty tough to track down sometimes. Uh, also, a lot of, you know, really good biographical stuff on the players and interviews with them and she spent a lot of time with them, and it was a pre-Twitter, pre-social media, pre-internet, pre-24-hour news cycle 
style of reporting. So I feel like players were a lot more open and less afraid of, you know, gotcha stuff than they would be mm-hmm. nowadays. So I think it was a sort of cool window. And I don't know if it's a book that could ever fully be written again. So those are those are my recommendations, I guess. Yep. And I'll I'll let you guys know what I'm reading as I go along. Um, but yeah, Short Circuit is like an ebook, I think. I don't think it's an actual book, but it's like five bucks on the Kindle, which is why I was reading it. Um, I got it at a used bookstore, actually. I have it on my shelf. Oh, did you? Oh, there you yeah, go. Yeah. So there you go. And then I think when I was reading like tennis books, I would get distracted. So like I read like score, like marginally related like sports books, right? Like so I read Scorecasting. Yeah, Scorecasting is um, By L. John. I read like a, the L. I feel like I've seen the L less and less. I'm pretty sure he still uses the L. Okay. But I just like calling him L John. I think it's perfect. <laughs> perfect, like L John. Perfect nickname for him. And then the other, I think I went on like a Billie Jean King kick. I think last year, when obviously all the 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 original nine stuff was happening. Solid kick. So yeah, it was a good kick. So I read Game Set Match, which is like a kind of a history of women's sport. And oh, I have that book like too. That. I haven't read it. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, good. So there you go. So those are. Those are our shelves. I have a lot of tennis books on my shelf that I haven't read yet. Basically, I go to a lot of used bookstores, and anytime they have a tennis book that I don't own, I pretty much buy it. So I've accrued. I have a full shelf on my sh- shelf. It's not small of just tennis. So read them, Ben. I will. Commit I to will. reading them. So if you listeners have any recommendations for a book that I should read next, um, odds are I probably already own it. And we'll put up a we'll, yeah, we'll put up a thing on Facebook and we can maybe start a thread because it sounds like a lot of people are looking for tennis books because somebody wrote me when I sent out that tweet about my kind of commitment and they were like, are there that many tennis books to read? And yes, there are. Yes, there are. There are a lot. There's also even like a lot of the there's a lot of tennis non uh, uh, tennis fiction as well. There is uh, recent. So, oh, yeah. by the way, on that front. I read the last tennis book I read was the book by Monica Sellers, co-written by our buddy James LaRosa, and it is incredible. <laughs> it's so it's so mindless in the best way as possible. It's just like if I think if, if I was writing a review, I'd call it a five star vacation for your brain. I mean, it's just it's so so you know dramatic. What's it called? It's called what is it called? It's called The Academy: Colon Game On. It's the first in a series, apparently. It's a young adult thing, right? Very, very young adult about this girl named something or other who comes from upstate New York and goes to this, like, IMG-type academy where everyone is, you know, out to get everyone else. But they also are alternately horrible and wonderful to each other in these great ways. And it's just, you'll be... You'll be gasping and giggling at every turn. And, and I should say that that book is not actually released yet, Ben. Not yet. It comes out during the French Open. I think yes, it comes out in June. So, yeah, but, so uh, don't, but but get excited. The cover alone it. is incredible. You guys covers, should look it up on, on Amazon. When there's a character introduced named Svetlana, I know I started laughing. Because, <laughs> and I'll leave it at that. All right. So with that, we will bid our listeners adieu. Wish you happy reading and happy listening and happy Whatever else you have in life. We'll be back next week uh, to recap Monte Carlo and answer any more questions you might have. We'll do our best. And we look forward to seeing you again. We're pretty sure that Rafa's winning this tournament. Yes, Courtney? I mean, we don't really make predictions, but Rafa winning Monte Carlo. So long as he doesn't get a freak injury, he'll win. Yeah. No stopping him. Pretty much. All right, guys. We will see you later. Bye. Bye.